Welcome to another episode of the Give Me Liberty podcast. A lot of things have transpired in the past couple of weeks. The heinous and unconscionable attacks of Hamas on the Israeli people and Israel's necessary retaliatory response in defense of their people and their national sovereignty. But before that, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to oust the sitting Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, an unprecedented move in our nation's history. We recently had the opportunity to sit down with Virginia representative from the 5th District, Bob Good, to talk about a very unpopular decision and how he believed that his faith in Christ played a critical role in making that decision. You don't want to miss it. Bob Good joins the Give Me Liberty podcast starting now. And welcome back to the Give Me Liberty podcast at the Standing for Freedom Center right here at Liberty University. We're joined by Congressman Bob Good, our representative right here in the 5th District in Virginia. Welcome. Glad to be with you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Well, I, uh, I'm honored to, uh, to be talking with you. Um, certainly, you've been busy. You've been very busy recently. I think the most controversial question on all of our minds, you were just in front of our students there at Convo, um, a lot of students standing uh, to applaud you and your leadership in, in DC, but uh, the most controversial question on all of our minds, how can you be a Christian in Washington? How is that possible in 2023? Well, I honestly don't think it's any different than how can you be a Christian in business or how can you be a Christian in athletics or competition, uh, you know, our mission and our responsibility as believers doesn't change wherever we are. And of all places that we need, need Christians, it's certainly been Washington, D.C. Yeah, absolutely. You gave uh, a really um, powerful, motivating speech. You talked about your calling. You were here at Liberty University those many years ago. You said the best five years of your life at that point. At that point. And, at that, that, that point. point yeah. Uh, but in terms of the equipping and training you received, um, you certainly didn't buy into this sacred-secular divide. I think it's one of the things we even heard from Professor Nancy Piercy, author of Total Truth, Love Thy Body. She even has a book on toxic masculinity. Um, she's an incredible uh, Christian thinker. But she talked about the sacred-secular divide, and I think it's very pervasive in the Christian world today, we hear about that a lot. Oh, Christians are only uh, called to do spiritual things, uh, but then business, politics, you know, whatever else, those are lesser things, lesser callings. But that's obviously not the case. Certainly not. And you know, I often will say it's not um, our Sunday morning walk is not what's most important. It's our Monday through Saturday walk, and uh, we're called to be salt and light wherever we are and whatever we're. Uh, doing from a vocational or occupational standpoint. And I can remember uh, when I left Liberty as a young student, a young graduate, I should say, and went to work for a division of Citigroup, you know, immediately you have a choice when you go out into that secular world. Do you blend in or do you stand out? And really the first day, just based on language, you tend to stand out. Um, and, and, you know, that, that your occupation should be your primary mission field, whether it's Congress, whether it's working at Citigroup or whatever someone does, because that's where you spend most of your time. And if you're not on mission at your workplace, uh, then you're not in mission generally. Um, I don't believe in secret agent Christians. I don't believe that's biblical. And so, you know, we ought to be salt and light wherever we are and whatever we're doing. So, okay, now to lesser matters. Uh, you know, I, 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 I rather enjoy some of the headlines of uh, folks in the, in the media who say, Congressman Bob Good breaks silence, right, uh, on the McCarthy House vote. But 
Walk us through that. Okay, so, um, uh, you know, as we're on the outside looking in, go through the thought process of not just, I, I think the most important thing, go back to what happened earlier in the year that led to this point. Um, we certainly are very interested in hearing your side of the story. Well, to your point, going back to January, where we had the first speaker challenge, where for the first time in 160 years, members of Congress on the House floor voted against their presumptive speaker for their own party. And uh, we did that repeatedly, some of us, through 14 rounds before uh, now former Speaker McCarthy became speaker on the 15th vote. And for me personally, it was my reason why I had so much opposition to him or, or resistance to him becoming speaker was in the previous two years, my first term, when we were in the minority, but we had a very narrow gap between us and the majority, similar to what we have now with us in the majority, I didn't feel like Speaker McCarthy led us in truly fighting the radical, extreme Biden, Pelosi, Schumer uh, agenda, and we didn't use every tool at our disposal. As a matter of fact, when my f colleagues and I in the House Freedom Caucus, when we would try to resist and fight back, McCarthy basically fought us in doing that. And then when you also combine that with his past history, which was a reflection of the Republican Party generally, he had been in leadership at that point for some 15 years as a majority whip or majority leader or minority whip, minority leader. But every major spending uh, bill that we passed when we had the majority was with predominantly Democrat votes. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get to, at then to that point, $31 trillion in national debt. And so I, my, my, my message back then in January was we can't repeat the failures of the past. We cannot afford this as a country. So when he became speaker, though, uh, on that 15th vote in the wee morning hours of Saturday, January 7, I scheduled a visit to come see him in his office that next week to say, hey, I'm behind you. We've turned the page. We battled. You prevailed. Uh, but we need you to be successful because the country needs you to be successful. And I'm going to do everything I can to support and help you. And we were pretty united for about four months. He uh, had uh, was following the conservative agenda, if you will, that we had kind of laid out to, for him and that he had committed to in order to become speaker and, and to, to uh, persuade some of my colleagues of the 20 who switched their votes because of the the deal that they made, mm -hmm. uh, which I think has probably since been demonstrated to be not a good move. We should have followed through with uh, preventing him from becoming speaker. But, um, but that was really discarded with the debt ceiling increase. Uh, his, I'll say negotiation loosely because it really was a surrender, but his agreement with Schumer and Biden to uh, Pass eight unlimited increase the debt ceiling around the first of June. Mm -hmm. uh, that would that would allow us to spend as much as we can spend through January twenty five with no limits. And we were begging and pleading with him to use the debt limit as leverage to cut spending because Senate the Democrats in the Senate, Democrat in the White House, obviously don't want to cut any spending. They actually want to increase it. And he failed to do that. And then he failed to bring our spending bills for a vote to the floor, the twelve appropriations bills, which he promised to do. He resisted us in keeping the spending cuts that he had promised, very modest cuts, quite frankly, historically significant. We were, the, the commitment was basically $100 billion in cuts. Well, that means we take our deficit of 2.2 trillion, 2.1 trillion. So it wasn't like real bold. It wasn't enough for us, but it was a compromise. And he resisted bringing the bills to the floor to those spending cuts. And then the ultimate culmination, again, was with the continuing resolution he passed on the Saturday before the, uh, the eventful vote on the following Tuesday, a few days ago, but which was to keep, again, the Biden-Pelosi-Schumer policies in place for another 45 days, mm -hmm. the policies that under which the American people are suffering and, and are oppressing us and destroying the country, 
and the spending levels that are literally bankrupting our country. So that was when it's sort of a final straw. We knew we needed to go ahead and try to remove him, which uh, ultimately prevailed. We have, uh, we have, I certainly have a lot of friends, uh, friends who agreed with you, friends who disagreed with you. Even in the Freedom Caucus, you had colleagues that were, you know, some in agreement, some in disagreement. Um, why, why was it though, when it came down to the final vote that you had eight Republicans, only eight, uh, that were basically, you know, voting the speaker out? Why explain that? Well, I would just say generally that in Washington, the majority of individuals are risk averse. Mm -hmm. Courage is in short supply. And there's a lot of fear there. There's also self-ambition, self-preservation, which is a natural human uh, desire, but uh, doesn't mean it should be what prevails when we make decisions. And I often say it doesn't matter what you believe unless you're willing to take risks and fight for what you believe. And we'd ho we'd hoped it might be around 10 uh, and ultimately ended up being eight, as you mentioned. Uh, but so I, I think some it was fear and some, uh, some it's, to, to be to, to uh, acknowledge fear of the unknown, what happens afterwards. But you know, we needed a disruptor in the White House in 2016. We certainly need disruption in Congress. Uh, you know, the uniparty, as I call it, the, the swamp cartel is what gives us the 33 trillion in national debt that we have. And where the, the Democrat Party, when they have power, they unapologetically, radically move us to the left. The Republican Party gets power, and we just kind of slow it down, try to hold hold ground, if you will. Uh, and the country can't afford that. So looking to some of the, the policy issues, uh, Pew Research uh, has uh, inflation at the top of mind of most Americans. It's when they go to the pump. It's when they go to the grocery store. Um, you know, they're looking at a carton of eggs or looking at a gallon of milk and how much cheese costs, all of those things. It adds up. Certainly the spending aspect is the one the one part of that, right, that's driving uh, our deficits up, you know, higher and higher. But then also, we continue to print more money. So uh, inflation is certainly an issue. It came right out of COVID. Uh, you know, they have CPI at what, 8%, 9%. But we know that when it comes to certain prices, it might as well be 100%, 150%. You have that issue. You also have education. It seems as though the main platform of the Republican debate stage so far in this presidential race has had said very little about transgenderism. Uh, they talk about other issues, but it's very little about the LGBT indoctrination in schools. That's another thing that's a pro-rights concern. Um, certain states are leading the way on that kind of thing. Um, and then uh, the other part is immigration. It seems as though uh, if you poll most Americans, it doesn't matter, Democrat or Republican. You look at states like New York, uh, California, they're very concerned about these, this open border policy. Um, how would you tackle those? Are those the most, you know, the most earnest and serious concerns of most Americans, or is it something else? Well, and that's what we begged and pleaded with Speaker McCarthy to fight because the, the issues are on our side and the Democrat Party, which is in power in the White House and certainly the Senate, uh, is losing and failing on every issue. There's nothing that's working under the Biden regime. And it, even just the spending, I think for some people, Americans just, you know, who just want, they want a decent job and provide a better future for their kids and good schools, as you referenced, and safe streets and a secure border and safe neighborhoods and and, and freedom, if you will, and the, and the government not to be oppressing them and controlling what kind of car they can drive, what kind of appliance they can have, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, and they want affordable groceries, affordable housing, and you know, just sure. utilities, those kind of. 
so I'm not sure most of them over time have connected government spending to impacting their daily lives, but those days are over. The days of inconsequential reckless spending are over when you're seeing, as you pointed out, 40-year high inflation. We haven't seen since Jimmy Carter. You're seeing 20-year high interest rates, so housing prices, inflation the prices right. combined with the average mortgage $1,000 a month more than it was when Biden took took office for interest only. As you said, grocery prices, the overall inflation's up about 20%. So a family, let's say, have an income of $5,000 a month, $60,000. That $5,000 is worth $4,000 today. They've lost $1,000 in purchasing power across the board. But as you noted, gas prices up 50, 60%, mm-hmm. and grocery prices up tremendous 30, 40%, housing, utilities, and, and the essentials are up much higher. That's right. And so they're suffering. Uh, so we're, you know, we have an opportunity there. There's the border invasion. I don't even call it immigration because immigration is a legal process that most Americans are in favor of a reasonable, merit-based, lawful immigration system. We are a nation of immigrants, and we allow a million of those roughly a year. It's the illegal invasion that's overwhelming our country. It was Jay Johnson under the Biden administration, uh, excuse me, the Obama administration. Their homeland Sec- security secretary said, "A thousand dollars. I'm sorry, a thousand invaders a day was unsustainable. We now have 10,000. We're tenfold what he said was not sustainable. And it's on purpose. It's beginning to impact blue cities and blue states where now they are beginning to cry out at the consequence of this, what this administration is doing. So as you pointed out, education, indoctrination of kids, uh, treatment of kids at schools, federal government intrusion into that, weaponization of the government against citizens. We're arresting pro-life protesters. We're arresting parents at school board meetings. We're going out targeting Catholics in Richmond. Uh, two-tier justice system, uh, how you're treated differently based on your political views, suppression of information. On You got the, Obama, the Biden administration um, appealing a court decision that they cannot work with big tech to sre- censor speech online. They're literally not even pretending anymore. They're going for broke. And so I think Americans are waking up to that. And that's why we're begging and pleading with Speaker McCarthy to use the power of the purse and to say, no more. We're not going to fund a Department of Homeland Insecurity as long as it facilitates a border invasion. We're not going to fund the Department of Injustice as long as it's being weaponized against its citizens. Uh, you know, we're not going to continue to fund borrowing $100 billion to send to Ukraine when our own military is being depleted and diminished by climate extremism. And we're not going to continue to fund reckless, excessive spending that's not only not warranted, it's harmful spending, the policies, but it's also literally bankrupting the country and and, and going to drive us into fiscal ruin. Since 1971, Liberty University has had one mission, training champions for Christ. We've been at this for a while. And in the shadow of the Blue Ridge Mountains, we have grown to be a global force. Today, Liberty runs over 100,000 students around the globe, studying across 15 colleges and schools. And among them, over 30,000 military students. Across 700 programs of study, we train as one, nurses, artists, business leaders of the future and today. Together, we work to give back through service trips, local community work, and over 500,000 volunteer hours per year. And we play just as hard as we study with 20 NCAA athletic programs and 40 club sports teams. So who are we? We are Liberty University and we train champions for Christ. Okay, I wanna lay out this question uh, in this way. 
you're not Karnak the Magnificent, none of us are. We can't really predict the future, but two alternative visions maybe for 2024. Uh, um, one uh, might be you know, the vision of um, a kind of statism that continues on this trajectory. The other is on the side of an American populism that appeals to the average working folks, uh, people like uh, uh, Oliver Anthony and others, right, who are out there. Um, and by the way, this is irrespective of, of, of political parties, but, but just in terms of what most working Americans, how they think, and uh, how their beliefs have been largely mar marginalized um, in, in mainstream, whether it be big tech, uh, you know, the big media, big education, and big government. So you have two alternative visions. Uh, what is most likely? Talk about that. What, what do you see uh, in 2024? Well, as I am political anyway, there are exactly two disparate visions for America. What kind of a country do we want to be? And there are bright, bold distinctions between those. There was a time 30, 40 years ago where you had moderates in the Democrat Party. They are all gone. I battle moderates in the Republican Party. We do have conservative and moderate in, in the spectrum. And it's funny, by the way, Democrats run as moderates and govern and vote as crazy radical leftist communists. Republicans run as conservatives, and then far too many of them actually vote as moderates. It's, it's very different on how we approach that, because the Democrat Party told Americans what they wanted to do. They could never win another election. Just, some, just an issue like climate, environmental, energy extremism, Democrat Party has declared war on fossil fuels, on affordable, reliable energy, and wants to tell you you cannot drive or even produce anymore a gas-powered vehicle. You can't have the kind of appliance you want. You can't heat or cool your home the way you want. You ought to be walking or maybe even biking everywhere. And that's literally what they want to outlaw vehicles. They don't care there's not enough charging stations for the electrical, electric vehicles that they want to fund China to produce the batteries for. They don't care that that's impractical because uh, 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 in industry is bad, uh, development is bad, uh, our way of life is bad. Uh, but so the, so the dem very different vision for education of our kids, very different vision for American exceptionalism, American sovereignty, uh, very different vision of who should control your lives. And the Democrat Party has become the party of the elites in power. They control all the levers of power, academia, entertainment, media, obviously, uh, federal government largely. And, uh, and they're the party of the dependent class, trying to grow the welfare state, grow the dependent class. Government is the answer. Government is the solution. And that's, that's, that's the Democrat Party. The Republican Party, to your point, has become the party of the working class, the regular Americans. And what we did with the speaker, by the way, was a blow against the status quo and the elites. And not just the speaker, but all of the people invested in that system. And of course, that the, the empire will strike back. <laughs> uh, the swamp system is not easily destroyed. We took, we we managed a blow against it, but there will be retaliation for that because there's so many people and so many entities invested in that system and 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 profiting from that system. And so that's what we've got to destroy. And Congress needs radical surgery. We don't need to give it an aspirin. And taking down the speaker was part of trying to do that surgery. Two policy fronts I just want to talk about briefly or at least touch on. Um, there's an opportunity with Roe v. Wade being overturned, uh, not only to do something at the state level, but even at the federal level. Do you see any kind of national bill protecting, defending life up to a certain point? Uh, that's one. And then two, um, you know, state by state, you're seeing states pass legislation against the mutilation of, um, or mutilation of um, children uh, in the name of 
you know, gender equity or gender affirmation or whatever. Do you see anything on that front? I want to speak to those, both of those issues. Last summer, we were driving a discharge petition to try to force a floor vote on our life at conception bill that we were co-sponsor of. And it was really sad and unfortunate to see many in the conservative movement and in the Republican Party and elected officials as well almost act as if they were disappointed Roe was overturned because all the people who were courageous fighters seemingly on that issue got skittish as soon as the responsibility now fell upon us. And it's been misrepresented many times where it's been said, oh, the Supreme Court turned it back to the states. Partially true. Supreme Court turned it back to the people's representatives, the legislative bodies at the federal level and the state level. Doesn't compel the federal level to act, but it doesn't prevent it either. And so if there's anything the federal government ought to, or the Congress ought to act on, it's to preserve and protect precious innocent life in the womb or our founding God-given rights that we identify in our constitution as protected life, the first one, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And so uh, I felt like a lonely voice last year and being the only one on the house driving that. And many of my friends who had been previously co-sponsors of that bill suddenly became hyper-federalists. Oh, wait, we don't have a federal role. Wait, wait, you were a co-sponsor of this previously. And so we are working on introducing that again, being the sponsor of it in a way that tries to better uh, 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 persuade my friends who are, again, hyper-federalists that we're not you know, getting out of bounds here to do it. So I encourage all states to do it, but we all do it on the federal level as well. As it comes to the transgender issue, uh, you know, we need to speak, stand up and speak truth that there's something wrong with a person if they think they are or they want to be another sex or another gender. We can have love and compassion and treat them with dignity and respect as individuals, but without affirming or, uh, or, or blessing or encouraging this confusion, this dysphoria, this misguided mindset, whether it's children, whether it's adults, we can respect the right for adults to live how they want to live and to have the freedom to do that, so to speak, but children are different. And we also should not give children, excuse me, parents, you know, we say, oh, oh parents can, only parents can approve if a child has surgery. Mm. If I take my child to the doc, to, to the hospital and say, you know, my child thinks he or she's a fish and they want to chop off their arms and their legs and cut out their lungs and give them gills so they can be a fish, A, I should be imprisoned for trying to do that for my child and any medical practitioner so-called should be imprisoned if they were to, to do that. Uh, we don't allow uh, adults or parents to abuse children in other ways, at right. least physically, and but we're gonna allow them to abuse their children to do, and even the puberty blockers and the cross-sex hormones do irreparable harm to their bodies. And we, we put parents under duress and tell them, oh, do you, you can either have a now transgender boy or a dead girl because she'll commit suicide if you don't help her become a boy when the opposite is actually true. We, you know, when, when we, again, we call it, boy, the Democrats are wonderful about affirming care. It's gender affirming care. That sounds nice, right? Affirm, who doesn't want to be affirming and care for people? But it's actual, as you called it, mutilation, it's abuse. And, you know, I, I recoil at some of my Republicans, well, parents need to approve. No, parents should not you know, we can't, we can't control how they treat their child at home, but in terms of surgery or medicinal treatment, uh, again, uh, puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones. So we have to speak up and, and, and speak truth and speak to the science of it and how God created two sexes, two genders, and, uh, and not be afraid of doing that, not be afraid of what we're called when we do that. So you're looking for a university that's perfect for you, a school that has anything you could possibly need. Anything? You want a place that has the programs you want to study, and maybe a few more just in case you change your mind. 
I think I'm going to sign up for the fashion design program. All right. A place with state-of-the-art facilities. I mean, look at this campus. And who doesn't love big time sports? And great recreational activities. Okay, now we're on a roll. Somewhere you can hike, slide, strike, shoot, climb, eat, and most importantly, eat. You want a place that takes you to space? Okay, maybe not, but we can teach you how to fly, or pastor a church, or run a business. And all that with a great view? Yeah, I think I know a place. We used to have a broader cultural consensus on uh, definitions of you know, abuse, um, child endangerment, all those types of things, agreed upon definitions. Certainly, um, you know, 30 years ago, I mean, probably still the case in many states. If you were to take, uh, say you're a heterosexual, you know, uh, male, uh, you know, father, you can't take your kids to a typical strip club. Uh, but yet what we're seeing uh, oftentimes uh, in the news and on social media are these uh, young children, uh, three, four, five years old, they're at these drag queen strip shows uh, and, and th th there's laughing, uh, people are making light of it. I, I don't know who, how that's even possible that uh, people are not arrested for something like that. But, uh, but that's the state that we're in. It is indeed. Um, final question, um, you know, Regarding the next generation, I think the most important thing uh, when we think about what we do here at, at the Freedom Center, at Liberty University, that there we're, we're training up the next generation to be champions for Christ. We're trying to win the heart of the next generation. Um, oftentimes, you know, um, there is this uh, wall of separation when it comes to the spiritual and even the political. Uh, but it seems more and more that even spiritual realities are being now called political. So if you defend traditional marriage, that is now politics. If you defend life, that is also politics. Uh, if you want to keep the, the, the government out of the decisions of the home in terms of values and worldview, that is now political. Um, how do we win the next generation uh, and taking these issues seriously at the same time? Well, I well, I think one of the most important things is not to be fearful or not to give in to our fear. The Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, as we know, and that's not from the Lord. And, you know, all of us are fear. I was fearful when I cast that vote against the speaker. I knew it was the right thing to do, but it was a sad day to have to do that. And I was fearful of the consequence uh, and didn't know what the uh, reaction would be across the country to that and what the ultimate result would be with the next speaker, so to speak. But I often speak at churches and I often speak before Christian groups and I tell them, whatever we think we are protecting by being careful, by being timid, by being vanilla, by being benign and not speaking out, they may get the loud guy first, they may get the bold guy first, but eventually they'll get him and then they'll come after you. And everything that we hold dear, everything that we value, everything that we consider precious is absolutely at risk in this country like never before. Uh, they are coming after us, and it is uh, it is a battle of good and evil. And in politics, we know Washington doesn't have the answer, and politicians are compromised just like everybody else. And frankly, our government reflects our people. We like to blame the government. We like to blame our representatives, but we put them there, and they do reflect us, whether it's apathy, apathy or disengagement 
or, or, or just making poor decisions and valuing the wrong things, but it does reflect us. So I think for our young people, we have to show an example of truth and an example of courage, an example of boldness, and an example of standing for righteousness. And you cannot separate the spiritual from anything. You can't separate the spiritual from the business world, from the academic world, uh, from the political world. And frankly, the pulpit or the church uh, should should touch on every aspect of our lives too. As we both know, and you know the history better than I do, but the, the principles of the revolution, the Declaration mm -hmm. of Independence, and the, frankly, the constitutional principles were first spoken in the pulpits in the churches. It was the pastors who led. It was the churches who led. And we would not be the people we are today, have the country we have today, if it, if it didn't begin with the churches and it didn't believe with the body, begin with the body of Christ. Mm, I believe many people recognize that, uh, even the ones who are trying to deconstruct it, especially those, because they understand that if uh, the cosmic reality is true, that, that the Christian truth, it doesn't just apply to metaphysics, but it also applies to law, mm -hmm. right, and history right. and civil society. If they know that, then all of a sudden we're accountable for all of these things. And that's, that's, exactly right. that's, where, that's, where, the, that's where the bedrock is found. Um, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. Great and to be with you, Ryan. certainly appreciate you representing Liberty University. Well, thanks for what you guys do here at Standing for Freedom Center. We need you guys. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Give Me Liberty podcast. Please like and subscribe and share with a friend. We've had the opportunity to interview many figures in government who have had to make difficult decisions, decisions that would divide most anyone, not only members of the same party, but even those who consider the Christian faith to be a critical component in their decision-making as conservatives. Representative Bob Good is a masterclass in courage. Whether you agree with his decision or not, whether you find all of his arguments convincing or not, it is clear that he is operating with a great deal of courage in his decision making. And if the argument is truly about principle, then principle is what should matter in the end. It is important to remember, as with all decisions that we make, that there is a long arc of history. God is the ultimate judge of history, not history itself, but God himself. And we all have to answer to God for our decision-making. And Bob earnestly believes that in his heart. He was a critical vote in January that confirmed Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. He was a critical vote in removing Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. And there was much that went into that consideration, even as the House continues to debate the votes on the Republican nominee, Jim Jordan, as Speaker of the House. With the ominous threat of war in Israel, the ongoing war in Ukraine, the challenges of a menacing China and Taiwan, the Middle East, Africa, Europe, it is so critical that America have the right leadership in place for such a time as this. So I hope that you are not only watching these events unfold as I am, I hope that you are sincerely praying. Pray for elected leaders who represent us in Washington. Pray for the vote for the Speaker of the House. Pray for President Biden and for Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Pray for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. For that matter, pray for the international community. As Christ commands us to love our enemies, there are also clearly outlined in precatory prayers concerning our enemies, more importantly, those who are enemies of God. Pray for President Xi of China. Pray faithfully and pray without ceasing. I hope that you will. Until next time, God bless you.